When Moses led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, he learned the power and the love of God. Join me, Pastor Hook, as we learn lessons from the Exodus and God's great rescue. We are in episode 31 of our study, Exodus, God's Great Rescue. And uh, we left the study yesterday. They had um, gone into the wilderness. Um, God provided the grumbling people manna and quail because people always grumble. And um, they took a part of the manna, an omar of the manna, and put it in a jar. And that ends up going in the Ark of the Covenant. And now they're continuing on. And, um, you know, this, this begins this long journey. And I probably should let you know, I mean, you probably already know this, but at this point, Moses is 80 years old, which is pretty old. I mean, he's not a young chicken anymore. And he's the one that's leading these million people. And so anybody that tells you that 80 is too old to lead, just point him to Moses and say, listen, Moses was 80 years old. And Moses led the people of Israel out of 40 years of wandering in the desert. So 80 years is not too old. Somewhere in here, God said that, the, that it's 120 years uh, is, the, is the lifespan of a man. So um, at this point, they're, they're about 120 years is how. So Moses is about two-thirds uh, through his life um, at this point. So, um, but he's not a spring chicken. And so, uh, you know, they're just going to walk right into the promised land. Everything's going to be great. No, no, they're still, they still have many, many battles to face. So we're just going to start reading in Exodus chapter 17, beginning at verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. <laughs> ah, people, people, people. As if this is Moses' fault. <coughs> God, please rescue us from slavery out of Egypt. Okay, I'll rescue from slavery out of Egypt. Oh God, we're hungry. Okay, here's food. Oh God, we're thirsty. Uh, it never stops. The people, people are people. And... Um, you know, people will always complain. There's always something to complain about. I think that's the one thing that bothers me about social media and Facebook is that it gives anybody the opportunity to complain. Um, I can't tell you how many times I'm not on Facebook a lot, but I'll, every once in a while I'll look at this thing called Nextdoor, which is kind of like a Facebook, but it's more localized to your area. And it's surprising I guess I'm not surprised, but it's it's just interesting about how so many people post so many negative things. It's like if people are upset, they will post a negative thing. But if people are happy or content or somebody does a great act of kindness, you don't see that as much. Now, you do see it periodically. Somebody will post a, a note of gratitude or thanks for something that's going on. But the the bad stuff outweighs the good stuff i'd say about 10 or 20 to 1 and that's just because people love grumbling that's just our human nature we're never satisfied with what we have and if somebody wrongs us we're always wanting to point out how difficult life is that's just the way it is and part of being a follower of jesus 
is that we're called to reverse that, to have a 20 to 1, but 20 times thanking God for all the great things, and then maybe one, you know, getting upset or grumbling about the bad things. Because there is so much that we have to be thankful for. And if we can transform our minds and our living and our bodies to go from from focusing on the bad things to focusing on the good things, you're just going to live a better life. You're going to bring joy and peace, and you're going to leave a trail of, uh, of God's kingdom behind you wherever you go. Also wanted to point out this is the desert of sin. This is not... Uh, this is not trespasses or penitentiamus uh, that is in the in the Latin. This is actually a proper name called sin, uh, which has nothing to do with sin. It's just the desert of sins, the name of it. It's a very Hebrew word. Hebrew words love to have two or three consonants. So this is a two-consonant word uh, with, with the I in the middle of it. All right, so... They leave the desert of sin. They travel to the place where the Lord commanded, and they begin to quarrel. So they say, "Why did you, why did you bring us out here?" Let's see what Moses says. We'll continue reading. Moses replied, "Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test?" But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, "Why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us?" And our children and our livestock die of thirst. So of course. They, they look at this and they say, if, if nothing happens, we're going to die here. Now, remember, uh, we have this really, really wonderful thing called water <laughs> that comes out of our faucet that we've created a whole system of bringing water delivery into our houses. And it's a very important thing because we all need water. How much water do we need, though? You, you talk to experts and they say, oh, I don't know, you need maybe two gallons a day or five liters a day or something like that. Uh, 10 liters a day. Um, the more you drink, the more it helps process the blood and clean out the kidneys. The less you drink, the more that that stuff stays in your kidneys. Um, there are people that actually do live a life of austerity when it comes to drinking water. They try to train themselves to drink as little water as they can a day. Now, water is good for you because it, it helps your skin and your blemishes and all that sort of thing. So there's a good positive aspect to drinking a lot of water. But those people that drink lots and lots of water have to, you know, eliminate it from their body all throughout the day. So I grew up in Phoenix. I don't drink, I don't think I drink as much water as most people. Like I can actually just have a couple of cups of coffee in the morning um, and that'll last me till noon or one o'clock, you know, and that's just fine. And then, you know, I might have to, and people think I'm strange or crazy because I don't drink as much water as everybody else does. But that's just kind of how I've lived my life and it's worked for me. The point is, is that these people knew the importance of water. And so they would carry water in jars or whatever skins so that they would have water available. And uh, now it's starting to run low. And now they're very, very concerned about it. And it's a valid concern. So they bring it up to Moses. Well, what does Moses do? Well, we'll continue reading in verse 4. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. So true. The Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb, Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. 
So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place Massa and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So this is um, Moses. Moses' instructions from God. This is how you're going to beat this problem. You're going to take the same staff that you had that opened up the, the, the Red Sea, and you're going to strike a rock at Horeb, and water's going to come out. Now, remember, we talked about the Old Testament, how you have different readings of this. It could be that Moses struck the rock, and there was already a positive pressure of water behind the rock, and all of a sudden, the water started to come out. Or maybe it was a miracle of God where he struck the rock, and God brings water out of the rock. Two points to all these miracles, though, is that there's that God has his hand and his presence in it because he's the one that tells Moses where to strike the rock. So they are relying on God at some aspect. So that's the point is, one, that there's instructions from God as to how to stop them. Two, Moses has to strike the rock uh, in order to follow God and uh, for the water to come out of the rock. And then three, this actual miracle or the water, however you want to view it, comes out of the rock. Of course, I view it as a miracle. I, I view all the Old Testament stuff from God as a miracle. I mean, if he can create the heavens and the earth, he can certainly do miracles like having water come out from rocks. Have no problem with that whatsoever. And so um, Moses does this, right? Oh, and uh, and the water, um, uh, he hasn't done it quite yet, but that's what happens. He's, God's going to tell him this, and he's going to do it. Um, I will stand there and I'll watch it. Now, it's interesting. Moses calls the place Masa and Meribah. Uh, Masa means testing, and Meribah means quarreling. <laughs> so uh, he calls it testing and quarreling. And that's, uh, I'm going to strike the rock. We're going to call this place testing and quarreling. Why? Because you tested God and you quarreled among yourself. But God provides a miracle. So let's continue reading to see if God actually does provide a miracle. Actually, um, I'll stand before the rock, strike the rock, water come out. Moses did this, and he called it. So it doesn't really say, but he does this, and the water starts coming out. So it's implied in here that the water comes out, um, but it doesn't actually say that in the text. All right, so um, what else do you need? You've got your own land, right? God's going to take you to the promised land. He's giving you quail. He's giving you bread, this manna, and he's giving you water. I mean, that's all you need in life is, is water, food, a place to live, and, and that's it. I mean, that's really all the basic necessities you need of life. So they should have no more reason to quarrel whatsoever. But of course, they do quarrel because they are people and people quarrel. Um, now, now we're going to see that getting to the promised land is not so easy as everybody thinks. It's not a walk in the park. It's basically a walk in Central Park, okay? <laughs> there are enemies in the park that have to be defeated. And so that's what also happens. So we're going to continue reading uh, chapter 17, verse 8. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So immediately we see that now they're walking through somebody else's territory and they're going to come and they're going to start to fight Israel. Now there's really no reason to fight. Um, there's certainly enough land for everybody not to fight each other. But 
People are also territorial. We feel fear or danger when, pe when strangers come into our midst. Um, that's called xenophobia. It's the fear of other people, uh, fear of other countries, fear of other nations, fear of other tribes. So the Amalekites have xenophobia and they are going to fight against the Israelites. Now, is xenophobia, we always have these, these phobias uh, that we're talking about in the news today, right? Uh, and is xenophobia good or bad? And we are told that xenophobia is bad. Afraid of other people and other tribes and other nations is bad. But we know throughout the history of mankind that there is a sense of solidarity among a tribe. If we all feel like we're part of a tribe, we are just, we're always a little bit fearful for people who don't look like us, they don't talk like us, they don't act like us, they eat different food than us, um, they have different hygiene than us. Um, and that this is a natural human condition as a part of the fall. And the idea that we should um, love all people and accept all people and be gracious to all people is not a natural condition of humankind throughout the history of mankind. It is not natural. You have to fight against that. And why does our society today fight against that? Uh, that is a very, very good question. I would posit to you that the reason why our Western society fights against that is because of Jesus, because Jesus loves all people. Jesus cares all, for all people. Jesus wants all people to come part of the kingdom of God. And so we as Christians fight against our natural human nature to be very territorial, to be more open and loving and uh, caring and have concern to all people all across the world to the point where we'll even go into other nations and help them because we love that. But that is not a natural human condition. And I would say that the reason why Western society does this and has words like xenophobia is because of Jesus. Now, there are a lot of people think, well, no, humankind would naturally love other people. No, this is not natural. I mean, if you even look at nature and look at tribes of lions or whatever, they're, they're going to fight against other flocks or tribes or prides or whatever. That is a natural thing that exists in nature. And if there is no God, then you would say you would have no reason to not protect your tribe and to fight against every other tribe. It is because of Jesus that we do this. And I would also say that... Um, Politics then comes out of that because there's this also desire of politics to, uh, you know, have power. And one of the ways you can gain power is to <laughs> to use the words of Jesus so you gain power. I know it's a horrible thing. And I, what I mean by that is there are so many people out there that want political power that they'll use religious power to get political power. But if you'll remember, Jesus was completely devoid of political power. He devoided himself out of all things. He had he carried with him just the clothes on his back and the love in his heart and he he did not represent any political power which scared the pants out of all the political powers and he was the most powerful person that ever lived and he started the most powerful movement that has ever existed. So you don't need a lot of political power if you have the kingdom of God in your life, like Jesus. So um, 
So yeah, so uh, we talked today about about how we shouldn't be xenophobic. And I believe that is true. I believe that that comes from Jesus. But we have to be very wary of any politician that's trying to use our Christian nature to gain power. That is not what Christianity is all about. Christianity is not one political identity. Christianity is a lack of political identity. But we live in a political world, so it's okay to have a political identity. It's okay to live as a citizen of the kingdom. It's okay to fight for laws that you believe in and all that. So, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying you shouldn't be political. But what I'm saying is that its root, Christianity, is not. All right, so let's go to verse 10. So uh, Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur, don't know who Hur is. Maybe it's Ben-Hur from... Uh, you know, the, the movie, went to the top of the hill. And as long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on the stone. Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, one on the other side, so that his hands remained steady until sunset, so Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. So fascinating story. They're fighting and Moses has the staff and when he raises his hands, the Israelites are winning in the war. And when he lowers his hands, the Amalekites are winning in the war. Now, I hate this word uh, winning. Um, it is not, uh, it, it is, because we think in terms of, you know, basketball games, winning and losing and wars, winning and losing. So it's the right word, but it's not, I mean, it's definitely not the, the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word here, what is the Hebrew word? I, um, I can't remember, but it's, it has a broader nuance than just winning the war. And, and different, and different um, versions of this uh, have, have different translations of this. But basically, it's they're, they're advancing. They're advancing or they're retreating. And maybe that's a better way to talk about it. When, when Moses is raises his arms, they're advancing and they seem to have the advantage. Uh, when, he, when Moses lowers his arms, they're retreating and they don't have the advantage. Um, so, so Moses has to live. And this is a miracle, right? This is, and you got uh, Aaron on one side. You have Hur on the other side, H-U-R. And when they lift up Moses' hands, they win. So this is the first battle that they encounter on their way to the promised land. And they win the battle. Now, what's interesting is this little guy named Joshua. It's the first time he appears in the story. Um, Joshua will be important in future stories. Joshua is kind of like Moses' general. Uh, don't know much about Joshua. Don't know how old he is. Uh, probably could look it up. Would probably have done a calculation. But, but he is somebody that's probably a, a battle-worn person. He's probably somebody who's rather strong. He's probably somebody that leads very well. Um, he's like a general. He probably has natural general tendencies. Obviously, Moses um, appreciates Joshua. Tr Joshua trusts Joshua. And he, all he has to do is say, go and get some men and go fight the Amalekites. And Joshua's like, ooh, I'll go do it. And so he goes and he grabs some men and they go and they fight the Amalekites. Uh, so obviously the people are going to love Joshua because he wins this battle. But it is not Joshua alone. Moses is there. Aaron is there. Hur is there. And God is there to help Joshua fight the battle. 
which is important to remember because if you go out and you do something and you win, you know, the battles of life, so often we think that it is us that have won the battle. But we always have to remember that two people are helping us fight the battle. One is God, who's always on our side, the Holy Spirit living in us, helping us fight the battles. And then the Moseses and the Aaron's and the hers in our life who are there to lift up their arms over us as we fight the battles of life. And these are, uh, these are people who exist in our life who help us see the deeper meaning of the battles that we have in life and help us and encourage us and, and motivate us and put their hands over us and say, you will win this battle. Those are all very, very important components in your life to help you to know that those, all of these are important to help you fight the battles of life. And the last thing you want to do is to fight a battle on your own. Because when you fight a battle on your own, one thing is without the strength and the help of God in your life or other people in your life, it's going to be harder to fight that battle. And two, when you win the battle, you're going to think it was all you. Like, I won this battle. This was me. I did this. And uh, go around strutting your stuff that you won the battle. Now, you had a very important part of the battle. There's no question about it because it's you and your battle. But God wants you to live a life of humility. God wants you to have a life of dependency upon him to know that he exists, that he's helping you fight the battles of life. So whatever battles you fight, Add people to help you fight the battle. Call upon the Holy Spirit to help you fight the battle. Not only will it make the battle easier, but it'll also help you to be humble to say it's not all about yourself. Very, very, very valuable lesson in this world. Um, we'll just continue on, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under the heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner. He said, because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. So this is something that Moses does. Notice Moses isn't fighting the battle. He's leading the people. He's telling uh, Joshua to go fight the battle. He's relying on Aaron and Hur to help him uh, in his counsel, as it were. Um, but but Moses is clear-headed to say, listen, we have to remember who helped us fight this battle. So he built an altar. He calls it the Lord is my banner. You'll notice Lord is all capitalized. So it's uh, the proper name of God, um, Yahweh, we, we call Adonai, uh, Nisi, is my banner. It's a Greek word, or the, the Hebrew word is Nisi. So it's Adonai Nisi or Yahweh Nisi. The Lord is my banner. It's the banner is um, like a standard or something that you, uh, that you carry forth in front of you. It's like a pole or something on a pole. Later on in Joshua, I think, or Numbers, we'll see that the Lord puts a serpent on a Nisi. A Ness is what the serpent is. Um, so this is all kind of a, it's, it's a, uh, you, and you may have seen it when you go out to, uh, to war, you might see a pole with a banner on it or, or something dangling from it. But this is, this is something that goes before you in battle. It's a banner. And so he, he says, uh, he builds a, an altar and he says, God is my banner. And boy, isn't that cool? 
that anytime you go through a battle of life that you carry in front of you a banner that says, God is my banner. God is my warrior. God is the one that's helping me fight the battles of life. My goodness. That is just an awesome visible, visual image of what God is doing in your life. And Moses builds an altar and he wants to make sure Joshua sees this. Probably why? So that so that Joshua, I mean, if you just won a battle, right? You won a football game. You're the quarterback. There is some degree of pride there and ego there. There's nothing wrong with that. But alongside of your ego and your pride, you have to remember that you did not win this battle by yourself. God was there. So Moses wants to be sure that Joshua understands this. Moses wants to groom. At some point, I wonder how Moses is grooming Joshua. Like when he starts to realize that Joshua might be the next person to lead the Israelites. I don't know. But he may have done this to several different people. This is the one that he's you know, grooming right now. But this is what a great leader does, is grooms other leaders. And how do you do that? You do that in several ways. But one of the things you do for a leader, to be a great leader, is to help them be humble. To help them understand that it is not just them. That they're surrounded by other people. They're surrounded by people they're leading. And they're surrounded by God, who's also helping them fight the battle. So Moses understands this, and that's why he builds the altar, and that's why he's making sure that Joshua hears this, because he wants to groom Joshua to be a good leader. And we find out later that Joshua does become a great leader, um, a phenomenally great leader. So that's good. Um, so I think we'll end it there. Uh, so let's just close in prayer. Gracious God, thank you um, that you help us fight the battles in our life. And thank you for always walking beside us. Thank you for bringing us into your kingdom. Be with us until we meet again. In Jesus' name.